and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. I'm super stoked and excited to share today's guest with you. But before I do, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So first of all, if this is your first time here, welcome. If you've been here before and listened to our conversations, we appreciate you returning. And if you like today's episode or you like any of our past shows, we would really appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review, gave us a rating, and shared these conversations on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is your social. The more that we can share these conversations, the more we expand our reach and we reach new listeners. And today's guest certainly has a lot of wisdom to share. So if you find today to be thoughtful, inspiring, and something that you think deserves to be shared, we would greatly appreciate it if you would do so. Also, a bit of information about me. So I work as an executive coach where I get to work with all kinds of executives at the C-suite level, the director level, the VP level, and I love what I do for a living. I get to think strategy, help people figure out how they can be their best selves, how they can be the best leader that they can be and manage other people. I also work in the sports world. So I work as a mental performance coach where I get to work with elite athletes and sports organizations and coach coaches. And I also love that aspect of my job. And I fired up this podcast, as you heard earlier, to really uncover gems about people's mindset and their journey. And today's guest has all kinds of gems that he's written about, that he's talked about, that he's learned along the way. So today's guest is Ryan Holiday. So when I set out to do this podcast, I have a list of people that I'd love to chat with. And Ryan was certainly on that list right from the get-go. I loved his book, The Obstacle is the Way. He's also written Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, Conspiracy, and Stillness is the Key, to name a few. He's written 10 books, and he's continuing to write. At his core, he really is a writer and a media strategist. He's worked in marketing. He's worked with prominent best-selling authors, including Neil Strauss, Tony Robbins, and Tim Ferriss. Before becoming a writer, he had a successful marketing career at American Apparel, and he went on to create an agency called Brass Check, which works with a lot of those people that I mentioned earlier, and also has clients like Google, Taser, and Complex. So Ryan has also been in the weeds and done the work as far as marketing and writing. He has sold more than 2 million copies, and his books have landed in the hands of world-class coaches and athletes and teams and people in the political world. He is somebody who has really made an impact. And a lot of his writing mixes stoicism, which he's really spent so much time unpacking and learning and and figuring out how to use that philosophy day to day in today's world. He also is obsessed with history. And you can find that in his writing. You can hear that in our conversation today. And he also studies things like religion and tries to basically learn from the people who, whose job it was to learn. So Ryan is a deep thinker. He's a deep learner. He's somebody who you can tell is continuing to learn and read. And he just has this humility mixed with this idea that he's learned and he's well-read and he's well-prepared. 
And I think that's going to come across in this conversation. I know it's going to come across in this conversation. And I'm just grateful that I'm able to introduce you to him. And so without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Ryan Holiday. Ryan, excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, we were just chatting and I told you I'm a big fan of yours. I think you just put out incredible work. Uh, your ability to tie in history and stoicism, which you are clearly well-versed in, and also just bring things to present day is, is really incredible. So uh, a quick story to back things up. I actually got a package in the mail from you about a year ago, and in it was a gift of Ego is the Enemy. And what I'm not sure you knew, or maybe you knew, I had already recommended The Obstacles the Way to all of my clients, and it's one of my favorite books. And so I'd love to just start there and and just understand your process as far as how did those books even find me? It's not like I'm some big influencer on Instagram or some, some person that has a massive following. But um, to give people perspective, like when you sent that package, I then continued to recommend your book to more and more people. So um, yeah, I would love to just know what goes into that process. So I, I think what happened, and I don't remember exactly, but what I think happened is so, so, Somehow when the obstacle is the way it came out, it had started sort of making its way through through different sports teams, either through strength and conditioning coaches or mental skills coaches or performance coaches. And so uh, honestly, like I didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, I'd always watch sports, but the idea that that uh, they had these sort of people who were helping them uh, uh, sort of uh, on the, the mental side of the game was just not something I'd really thought of. In fact, I'd sort of written the books more um, for, for the type of people I know you also consult with are just sort of CEOs and executives. And so it was, it was so cool to hear that I was going through sports and that these sort of gr- this, this sort of secret side of the profession was responsible for that. I thought that was really cool. And so at some point I asked the publisher if, if they would be willing to send some, some more books to people like that. And they said, yes. And so I think what I did is I asked some of the people that I'd heard that, that had recommended the book and had reached out to me if they had anyone that they recommended I send to. And so I asked probably 20 people and they gave me 20 names. And so uh, that, 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 that was uh, how it happened. And I'm sure uh, for a huge chunk of the, the people we sent to, the books never arrived or went straight in the trash. But I'm, I'm so glad that, that you read it. And uh, yeah, here we are talking. Yeah, it definitely was a pleasant surprise. I was like, yeah, I, I'll take, I'll take another one of these and give it away. And I was actually looking for my copy of the obstacles away. And it's not it, it, on my bookshelf. Cause I probably gave it to a client along the way. And you said just before that, you said the audience you were writing it for were corporate people, CEOs, executives. Can you just go into how you think about uh, your audience when you're writing? Because I'm writing a book right now and my publisher, they're constantly saying, who's this for? Who's the audience? And I, I really struggle with that. So I'd love to get behind the curtain and understand better how you think about your audience when you're writing a book. Well, so my love is is ancient philosophy. I love philosophy and history and strategy. And so what I always think about when I'm writing is like, where does what I love overlap with what people need? And um, I, I, I was aware that... Um, you know, in the 80s and 90s, certain sort of books had become popular, like there's always sort of a a resurgence of of the art of war or of uh, the prince or things like that. And and, and I'd read articles where business executives were talking about that that thing. So I thought, you know, maybe I could write a book that's sort of taking a lot of similar ancient stories that would be popular with the same demographic. So that's kind of what I was thinking. And and at that time, I, I had a a job I was uh, in in marketing for uh, a, a pretty big fashion company, and so I was sort of more in the corporate world than I was thinking about how these strategies work for office politics and performance, and you know, working long hours and getting the best out of yourself, and all these sort of things. So I was writing more for that audience, but but I think when you're writing, what you really have to be thinking about is like, what value are you providing the reader, any reader, and are you are you telling them something that they can actually use in some way? Uh, too many books, you read them and, and you realize it's just the author sort of showing off what they know or the author um, like talking about themselves or whatever it is. And, and so when, when I write, what I'm really thinking about is like, how can I provide something to the reader that, uh, that is sort of tried and tested, but, but do so in a way that will 
actually allow them to use the information in their profession, whatever that happens to be. It makes complete sense. And I think it's all, it's harder than it sounds. It sounds so simple, but the having the empathy to try to understand, all right, what would other people find valuable instead of just writing the book for what I would find valuable, I find to be a challenge. Um, where did you? Well, yeah, yeah. I would, I would say like, you know, shooting a free throw seems like it should be easy, right? Or, or you know, do running running a race, like uh, especially if you're in good shape or you know you've trained. It seems like it should be easy, but it's it's obviously harder, or more people would do it. And and so one of the interesting things I think about books or about the writing profession is that like unlike sports. Uh, everyone seems to think that they can do it, you know? And, and, and it's like, I say everyone thinks they, they can write a book and, and, or most people think they can write a book and everyone thinks they can write a children's book. And the truth is like, if this was really easy, uh, there'd be a lot more sort of people doing it. And, and also I think, you know, it would be, uh, it wouldn't be as impressive either, but it, it is hard. And, and, you know, b- books are, uh, but to me, writing is a craft that, you know, requires mastery, just like sort of any other profession. Yeah. And I actually hired a coach to help me with the writing process because of that. Oh, I mean, nice. Yeah. I realized I said, I, I you know, this isn't my full-time job, but sure. I think I, I've got an idea and a concept and let's roll with it and let's get someone to help me. And her ability, she's actually in Austin. Um, she's not, not too far from you. Her name's Larry Bishop. Shout out to Larry. Okay. And, uh, and she's been amazing. And her way of synthesizing ideas and words and then thinking about the audience is so far beyond it. And to your point, that mastery that she has for that is so far beyond me. And, and I hope I put out a good book. That's the whole idea. But I didn't feel confident enough that I would put out a great book unless I got coached and had someone help me along the way. As you go back to your process, you're working in marketing, you've got this successful career. Can you go back to the first book that you wrote and making that leap? And how did you think about mastering that ability to write a book compared to what you were doing on the marketing end? Yeah. So I, I, I had an advantage in that uh, I had been a research assistant uh, when I was in college and for several years after that for a great writer. So I kind of always knew that I wanted to be a writer and I felt like I was training for it. I just, uh, it, it wasn't something that required sort of a full-time uh, uh, commitment just yet. So I felt like I was sort of putting in my hours as a, as a writer for many years. And then of course, you know, unlike, uh, sports, like reading books does make you a better writer. Whereas like, you know, you could watch unlimited amounts of NFL games. It's probably not going to, you know, improve your, 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 your foot speed. Um, and so I was sort of putting in my hours, you know, reading and, and writing and researching, but the decision to write that book uh, was was I mean one of the scariest things that I made. I, I more or less quit my job. I moved across the country. I, I was in a position financially where I could sort of in, invest in the process a little bit. I didn't have to just uh, you know I, I I could take that time. But I, I spent about a year uh, teaching myself you know how to do that first book, and it was you know, ex- extremely difficult. What, what I was thinking about in that process, though, is like, the, the things I talked to lots of writers about today, which is like, how can I, how can I, what, it, what's sort of the thing that only I can say, right? Wh- what's a, what's a book that doesn't exist that should exist? Um, what are the things that maybe I'm afraid to talk about? Those are kind of exactly the things I should be talking about. And, um, you know, what, what, so, so it's it's really in sort of answering a lot of questions like that that I think you sort of feel your way in the dark into whatever your book ends up becoming. And I was I was just in uh, Brazil yesterday, and it occurred to me um, I, I posted this on Instagram, but um, when I was in Brazil last, I, I I'd done a talk in Brazil, one of my first public uh, public talks ever in in 2012, and in, in my hotel room before the talk, I'd been negotiating with my publisher to do what the book that became the obstacles way. And, uh, and I remember even then, you know, it was, it, you had this vague sense that it would work. The publisher was kind of half in half out on the idea. Um, and you know, I, I, you, you take the chance on it, then you have to do the work and you have to put it out. But what was crazy for me for it to sort of come, um, 
full circle is that I met a person there who had a tattoo of the book uh, tattooed on their arm in Portuguese. Um, and so like when we talk about it's got to deliver something for the, for the reader, I think what that book ended up doing and why it worked is not because it's about ancient philosophy, but because that, which that's what I'm interested in. What it did was it provided them some idea, some thought that was so, that, that hit them in such a way that they were, that, that they literally tattooed it on their body. So I think a lot of writers are more like, oh, I think this would be fun to write about, or I think this would, uh, you know, uh, get me a lot of speaking gigs, or, you know, people are interested in books about leadership, I'll do books about leadership. And it, it just, I think to really do it right, it requires something more than that. So you have the obstacles away tattooed on your arm, and then you're saying this random person in Brazil had the same thing tattooed on their arm. Did that person share with you? I don't know how your Portuguese is, but did, that person, did that person share with you why they did that? I mean, I think, I think it, for probably the same reason that I did it, and I didn't invent the phrase, so I don't feel uh, you know, weird talking about it. it, it th- th- there's certain expressions, certain ideas that are so powerful because they're sort of always true. Um, there's a saying in Buddhism, like the, the one saying that will always be true is that um, this too shall pass, right? That, that there's no situation to which that, that, that truth does not apply. And I think the obstacle is the way is a similar idea and, and why ultimately I decided to build a book around it is that there, there is no situation so bad that there's not some advantage that can be wrestled from it. That, that, that's not to say that everything bad is good, but that some good can be found even in the darkest, worst things that we undergo. And then I think the same with ego is the enemy and stillness is the key. I'm trying to find ideas that it doesn't matter how many times you try to break them or disprove them or look at them from a thousand angles, like they still provide guidance and, and, and insight. It seems like those three books are, are connected. You certainly reference the other books in them. When you set out to write them, were you thinking about all three or were you thinking one at a time and then they sort of flowed? Is there a fourth one that comes after this? How do you think about all that? Yeah, I, I, was, I had no idea it would be a series. I mean, honestly, I didn't even know the, the book would really work. I mean, I remember a friend of mine predicted that, that The Obstacle is the Way would sell 5,000 copies. Uh, so obviously not, not a great friend. Uh, but... but um, I, I just, I had this idea that I wanted to say that thing. And then in saying that, I sort of came across a format and a style and an approach that worked. So I used it again for the second one. And then by the third one, it was it was pretty, you know, established. I'm going to do another series of books uh, that'll be sort of similar, but but uh, I'm, gonna, I'm sort of capping that at a trilogy. And you mentioned speaking in, in Brazil, and I'm sure you get speaking opportunities a lot. Can you talk about your mindset when you're speaking compared to when you're writing and where you feel most alive or how they're similar or how they're different? I'd love to just hear what that's like. Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like I'm a writer. Like that's my, that's my medium. That's where I live. That's where I come up with my ideas. I'm certainly not one of the writers that's writing so I can speak. Um, if anything, I'm, I'm speaking uh, just to talk about what I've written about, which is always a bit strange. But I think... Um, I, I've come to embrace speaking as a medium just because it's a challenge, like as an introverted person to get up in front of, uh, you know, hundreds of people or in some cases many thousands of people. It's there, there is a challenge to it and it's a different, you know, it's just a different way to test the, yourself. Um, uh, obviously financially it, it, it's a way I, a, a lot of writers make more money speaking than, than, than they do writing. Um, but, but for me, it's, it's, it's that, it, coming to understand that different people learn different ways and that um, if you go, oh, I'm a writer, that's the only medium I, I communicate in, I think you're artificially limiting, you know, who your message can reach. So I put a lot of time and in thinking into like, how can I, how can I take these ideas, which I, I think I've expressed well in writing and come up with a way it, to express them visually or, or verbally. And you said earlier that you've always wanted to be a writer. When did that start for you? When did it get in your mind that writing would be the thing that you'd want to do? It wasn't as young as it is for some people. I mean, I think I've talked about this before, but like, I, I don't think I grew up knowing anyone. I certainly didn't know anyone in any creative profession growing up. And I'm not sure I knew 
really anyone, any of my friends' parents that did not have a job. I think one of my, I think one of my friends' parents, his dad owned a construction company, uh, and and so like the idea that 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 writing was a thing you could do. Like I'm not sure as much as I loved books. I'm not sure I fully wrapped my head around that. Um, uh, so so for me. It wasn't until college, I was writing for the college newspaper that I, I started to sort of bump up into and, and having a chance to meet people who had like written books that I liked, because um, I, would, I would interview them for things, that I, I realized that, oh, this was a, this was a thing you could do. And uh, that, that was definitely a big breakthrough for me. It's interesting as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking about my own upbringing. And I, my dad's a journalist by trade. And so... Uh, by being a journalist by trade, I would write papers or speeches and he would take it and, and redline it. And I actually think I had an aversion to writing as a result. I, I love my dad. I was blessed, like great dad and has supported me along the way tremendously. But I think I, I sort of buried some of my writing ability because I was afraid of the editing that yeah. was necessary in order for it to be, a, to be great. Um, and then I remember getting feedback along the way when I was in college from, I took a writing class and someone said, Oh, you've got some talent. And I think I'm okay. Like, I think I have some talent, but not anything drastic. Um, and I remember hearing along the way, this idea of writing drunk and editing sober. And I yeah. forgot, forgot who term, who, who coined that term, but is that something that resonates with you as you go through your process? Is it sort of, Hey, get everything out there and then be meticulous and edit it along the way. Or is your process different from that? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, definitely not that. Um, I, I think that's a Hemingway quote. And, and I think I, if we're trying to be charitable, I think the quote, I think the idea is that like you, you, you sort of, you, you don't want your inhibitions or your self doubt to be, getting in the way of putting pen to paper. So I, I do think about the idea of sort of like crappy first drafts, which is another writing expression. Like you have to be comfortable putting together like bad pages or mediocre pages because that's the only thing you can edit into good pages. Um, but, but uh, you know, I, to, to your point about your dad, this is something I, I've thought about and actually written about. Um, I, I, uh, I had this theory, and I've, I've written about it before. I'm be curious if it matches with your experience. I have I have some idea that maybe like the reason that uh, so many um, so many uh, athletes have children who become professional athletes, like a Steph Curry, uh, you know, his dad his dad's in the NBA. Um, is that because superior genetics? Probably. Is that a little bit of nepotism? Probably. Um, but I also wonder if like. Being in the, like, the idea of thinking you could make it in the NBA or in professional sports is so intimidating and unrealistic to most people. Um, but, but to wake, like, just like it's intimidating to me to be a fireman, but if my dad was a fireman, I would have gone like, oh, this is just a job. These are just regular people. And so I, I think, like, one of, the, one of the hard things for people who, who come from you know, very different upbringings and what they end up doing is that there's a mystique around the profession or the craft that, that makes you think you don't have what it takes. Whereas like, you'd be like, oh, my dad's just a person. So of course, uh, if he can do it, I can do it. I, I think for me in writing, it was like, well, those are like special people. Those are people who get into better schools than me. Those are people who have better qualifications than me. Um, those are sort of naturally brilliant geniuses, um, but me, I'm not that, so I can't do it. And, and so for me, there was something meeting writers for the first time that, uh, even though I met some very impressive writers, it just, the mystique went away because I realized that this was a profession like any other profession. Uh, spot on. Uh we uh, we saw each other in San Antonio, and that's when I reached out to you. And in San Antonio, I spent I had dinner with Brent Barry, who's with the Spurs. Yes. I'm sure you've been around Brent. I mean, his dad, yeah. his dad's a legendary Hall of Fame basketball player. His brother played in the NBA. The Barrys are they're they're basketball guys. And no, I grew up I grew up in Sacramento, so I'm a very big John Barry fan. So so you know, and you know, I talked to Brent at dinner 
for, for a while about this. And I, to your point, my dad is an entrepreneur. He was successful in business. So for me, going off on my own, starting my own thing, like not all that scary because I, right. I, I saw it, I witnessed it. Um, and oh, by the way, my dad was home for dinner every night at 6.30 and sure. coached, coached our teams. So I, I saw that as well. So my normal is not someone else's normal. Um, and I, I had Hakeem work on who played in the NBA for 10 years and is famous for having a block shot in the NCAA championship game for Syracuse, um, to seal their victory. And Hakeem said the same thing growing up in Philly, he wasn't around that many guys who were that great. And then he got to a certain age where he was playing against some older guys who went on to be division one basketball players. And all of a sudden Hakeem was like, wait a second, I can do that. And I think there's a larger lesson there for society, which is we have segregation that occurs in our society, whether it's racial or economic or, or sexual or whatever it might be. And so when people are isolated, sometimes they don't see the path um, because it's so far away from them. And if there's ways for us as a society to model that and to touch it and to bring people together, there is an opportunity for someone to say, oh, I can be just like that person. I think you're, you're flat out with Kobe Bryant or Steph Curry or Peyton Manning. Or the, the list goes on as far as people that have watched their parents be successful and then, then they end up being successful. Um, if you want to riff on that, feel free. And I'd also be curious to hear what you did see growing up. So what was your family like growing up? What was your upbringing like? And I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you became who you are today. Yeah. So my, my parents were, my mom was a school principal and my dad was a police officer, but like your dad, he was also, he sort of did more than one thing. So he's also entrepreneurial and he invested in things and he's kind of always doing this stuff on the side. So I, I learned, I think from my dad, primarily sort of a work ethic and a, and a, a, a desire to sort of figure out the processes, like how businesses or industries or projects work. So, so even as a writer, this is, I, I think this has been a big advantage. So I didn't really learn anything from my parents about books or about how to write or, you know, how to, to have a creative profession necessarily. But what I did learn was um, that, that you didn't want to be just sort of dependent on one thing and you didn't want to necessarily just trust that, you know, things would get taken care of. So I think I've been lucky as a writer. And, and look, one of the reasons when I was negotiating that deal for, for what became The Obstacle is the Way, one of the reasons that I was able to take some risks and not really worry that the publisher was not super excited about the deal. Like, I think I took about, the, the advance for The Obstacle is the Way was about half or less than half than the advance that I got for uh, my first book. And so the reason I was able to do that was that I wasn't solely dependent on writing as my income stream. And so I, I was able to, to take some risks. So I think what I learned from my parents was like sort of how to be entrepreneurial within uh, the, the, the context of, of what you do and, and how to sort of um, to, to, to sort of develop some independence that way. So, so that was, that was super important and, and something that I, that I talk to, to writers about still, it's like, um, if, if you are dependent on your book to make, uh, you know, to pay your rent every month, you are now forced to write and think in a way that's different than someone who has a little bit more of a cushion or, or is a, a little bit more financially independent. Yeah, I think it can go both ways. And we were talking about the, the kids of former pro athletes and perhaps they not just have um, the model, but they also have the security, right? The security to fail. Hey, hey yeah. go, go for it. And you know, if, if, if something, if you don't make it, so what, like you'll be okay. And that idea of you'll be okay is, is massive. And I've definitely had that privilege uh, with my family and my parents saying, Hey, go for it. Like, you'll be okay. You're not gonna be homeless. You're not gonna have to live in a shelter. Like, you know, worst comes to worst and you're 30 years old, you can live in our basement. They didn't say that, but sure. But I no, knew, no. I knew and, that. And I think one of the, the other things probably is like, uh, and this is something I didn't have familiarity with that I'm just, like when you said like I, I hired a coach, right, uh, to help me with my writing. I, obviously, I imagine your profession, you, you get that. But like I I think uh, one of the things that I, I struggle with, is like you know, my dad was like, it's like, no, I, I mow my own lawn. Like, no, I, I do my own taxes. You know, no, I... I, I do all this stuff myself. And so there was a sort of an independence there that was great. But the downside was you, um, uh, 
the idea of like hiring experts to make you better was something that I did not have a lot of familiarity with. And I wonder, you know, if, if you're Del Curry's kid, you see your dad working out with different coaches and hiring trainers and hiring a nutritionist and, you know, going to flying, not to the closest doctor in town, but to the world-class, you know, knee surgeon in, you know, Colorado or, or whatever. Like, I, I imagine you, you, you start to see sports not just as this sort of thing that you're naturally good at, but as a process or as a set of sort of cumulative actions and decisions and then you're able to embark on that earlier in a way that someone who's just like naturally talented but has never glimpsed behind the curtain is not going to be familiar with. Oh, so I, I love where we're going with this because the second part of what I was going to say is I've interviewed players at the NBA Combine, NHL. I've done it for Major League Soccer. And so you get the kids who are being drafted in the league and th there's, there's like two paths that I noticed. There's the path that we're talking about. And then you have this other path that these people who are saying, nope, this is it. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And I have nothing. And I'm just a basketball player. And sure. that, that's it. Like there is no plan B for me. This is my life. I'm obsessed. And there is no plan B. And so I think there, if we're going to use the obstacles the way as a metaphor here, there's also this idea of like, hey, I'm going to take everything that gets thrown at me and I'm going to just go toward it and I'm not going to stop and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to where I want to go. And so I've always been interested at looking at those two possibilities because I think there's definitely the people that have the safety and security to go for it. And then you have the people that are just hungry and they are going to not stop until they get to where they want to go. And I've worked for teams who have said, we want the hungry guy and, you know, give me the hungry guy. And then I've worked with other teams that say, no, the person that's secure will explore and ask for help or. or yeah, go. sure. So, do you have any thoughts on the other side of it, which is the person that's just hungry and perhaps you've, look, you've, you've been inside organizations, you've spent some time with some of the best pro sports organizations in the world. I'm curious if you've also, thought about the other side of it, which is the person that just has, you know, nothing to lose in that way, but it's nothing to lose in that there is no plan B. I mean, I think, I think you need, ideally you need both. Right. And, and I, I would still clearly a, a, a Steph Curry or a Brent Berry or John Barry, there's an immense hunger there. The hunger isn't like literal hunger, but it's a hunger to prove something. It's a hunger for greatness you know, it's it's a it's a, a hunger for winning. Um, I think I think you you need both. And and one of the problems though with the just like, hey, this is all I have. This is everything for me. Is that you know the odds aren't great, right? And so it sets one. It's not that it sets you up for disappointment, but that it 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 sort of limits your optionality. So I, I'm a big fan of of David Epstein's book about range. And the I think I think ideally you want to come from a wide breadth of experience. And then as you, as you sort of uh, get older, winnow that down into the thing that you're like, okay, this is what I was meant to, to do. To, this is what I was put on the planet for. I, I, would, I would venture to guess that there are people who, because of the, the circumstances they've come from, and, and because of the lack of encouragement they have to develop themselves more fully, it's it, it it's they think they're like you know they were tall in seventh grade so someone's like you're a bass you should be a basketball player they, that was the first thing they showed any aptitude in so they were like this is it this is it for me for the rest of my life if I don't become a professional in this like it's it's this or bust um, you know that person that that hunger that skill that desire for greatness that they have. You know, who knows? Actually, they, they may have been better as a as an entrepreneur or a business executive, or maybe they were they're actually, you know, not uh you know, they're they're not not actually meant to be a, a basketball player. Maybe they're meant to be a baseball player. I th I think it's fascinating that that Tom Brady was was also drafted as a as a baseball player, not that far from where he was drafted by the by the Patriots. I, I think it, so the, the hunger was there generally, um, you know, and I think that's actually, it's better that the hunger is there generally and then you find the thing that it goes to rather than like sort of desperately putting all your eggs in one basket too early, you know, sort of a la like a Tiger Woods. 
yeah, I, I, at the combine will ask them, Hey, why do you, why do you play basketball? And a lot of times people say, well, I was just good at it. Like I was good at it at a young age. And so I just sort of kept and they had competence, right? Like yeah. self-determination theory we talk about, right? Competence, relatedness and autonomy. Like they just were good at it. They got feedback that said they were good. So they just stayed with it. The issue with that becomes when you get into the pros, everybody's good at it. And so now what, like now what's your secret sauce and now are you going to find your way? I'm curious for you because you've gotten recognition at a young age, you were good at writing. Um, what for you is motivating you? Like why, why do you continue to write? What, what's it, what's your drive? Yeah, I, I had a sort of similar experience. I was, uh, I was, I wrote an essay, you know, just you, you go into your class, you're supposed to write an essay or whatever. It was in maybe 11th grade English. And I wrote this essay about the great Gatsby that I thought was just sort of an ordinary essay. And I came to school the next day and the teacher had like printed off copies for everyone in class. And we spent like the next day sort of dissecting why this essay was so good. And that was like, you know, certainly not the kind of recognition that I was getting from my parents. It was certainly not something I anticipated. And it was like, oh, it was the, the first sort of indication that like maybe I was good at this thing. Um, but, you know, it, I think it would have been bad if my pursuit of writing had been in uh, chasing that praise. I think what I what I loved, and I, I still love the book, it was a book about, it was an essay about The Great Gatsby. Um, what I loved, and I don't remember exactly the essay, but what I, what I remember loving was the, the process of, of coming up with a counterintuitive uh, uh, argument about something and then marshalling the evidence for that, putting it together, you know, and then putting it out in the world and having to defend it. Um, and, and, and that, that's what gets me out of bed this morning. I mean, like I'm working on a chapter for a book right now and it's like, I had all the raw materials laid out and it's like, how am I going to make the argument that I'm going to make? And what is that argument going to be? And who is it going to be for? And, and, and how can I get the words exactly right? So it lands with this sort of utmost impact. Like as much as I love selling books and, you know, giving talks and, uh, all, all the sort of fun stuff fundamentally why I do what I do is the, uh, the love of that challenge of, of ideas and stories and, and the sort of the, the, the power of the written word. I told you earlier, I'm writing a book. So I just finished like my manuscript. Now it's in the editor's hands and they're, they're fleshing it out and thank God for them. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, but the book is basically about your mindset for preparation being different than your mindset for performance. Okay. And I want to get your thoughts on this because Ego is the Enemy is an interesting book because it kind of goes counter to some of what I'm talking about in my book. So what I've noticed and um, witnessed and observed and then backed it up with a lot of research and studying is that um, the best performers in the world are humble in preparation and arrogant in performance. Um, they're perfectionist in preparation, and then they're adaptable in performance. They fear failure in preparation, and then they're fearless in performance. So there's all these binaries that I've noticed that exist between these great performers. Um, and we'll use Steph Curry as an example because we talked about him earlier. Like Steph is so humble, constantly learning, constantly growing, always working on a new aspect of his game. But even Steve Kerr says that he loves his arrogance, that when he gets between the lines and goes across half court, he's in range and believes that he can make shots from anywhere. And just so we're clear on distinctions, like arrogance for me is not necessarily flexing your muscles. It's simply the belief that you're important, that you're special, that you've got something to give to the world. Um, and so I'd be curious to get your thoughts because ego is kind of like arrogance. Um, and so I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that framework and how you think about it and if you think that ego can ever be in service especially when we're in performance i mean i i guess i would take issue with 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 arrogance here I, to me i don't think steph curry has arrogance when he when he believes he's in, in range you know sort of anywhere past half court i mean to me it's sort of demonstrably true that he is within range so one of the things i, I think I could have done better in the ego book. And I think I talk about it a little bit in stillness, but um, uh, 
is is making a clear distinction between ego and confidence. I think the idea when you leave ego is not uh, ego's enemy is not that you think that you're worthless and you don't have any talent. It's that um, you you have some what you might call sort of like rock hard confidence. Um, that what you strip away is the ego. What you strip away is arrogance. Like I'd argue, like Donald Trump has ex- is is an extremely arrogant person. Um, and, and this isn't a political argument. I think it, it, even the the he would say that. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would say even like Republicans who support what Donald Trump believes would would argue that his arrogance has been his primary obstacle uh, in in terms of of like collaboration and and uh, like you know. He doesn't. He doesn't need to be uh, the, the the first major Mueller investigation. Doesn't need to happen. Donald Trump brings this on himself, both in terms of uh, firing um, James Comey because he he you know couldn't stand anyone not being loyal, and then uh, the interviews that he gives after, where he's so arrogant that he can't even think about how this is going to be perceived by other people. So again, I think this is a nonpartisan argument that arrogance. It is is actually a, a weakness. It, arrogance is what causes us to overreach. Arrogance is what causes us to think that we're better than we are. Arrogance is 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 fragile. Confidence to me is based on on truth, on reality. So, like I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago. I said, like I don't believe in myself. I have evidence, right? Like when I sat down to write my first book, it would have been arrogant to go, oh, of course I can write this book. It's going to be amazing. It's obviously going to be a bestseller. And then it's going to set in motion all these other books that I would write. Not only would that have been arrogant, but it would have been like ridiculous, right? Yeah, hubris. Um, What what I did go into it is focusing on the evidence that I had in my own capacities. So I knew that I was a hard worker. I knew that I put in the training. I knew that I didn't quit easily. I knew that I asked for advice when I was in over my head. You know, I knew that I was a good writer, so on and so forth. So I knew that if it was possible for me to write a book, I would come out the other side with another book. So to me, I make a big distinction between confidence uh, and, and and ego and arrogance. I would I would totally agree with the first part of your premise that uh, that that humility and preparation is key because if you go into the locker room thinking that you're the best and that you're unbeatable, you're not going to get any better. So humility is adaptive there because it forces you to focus on what you don't know, uh, on what you can improve, on where you're weak. Um, so I see that, but I'm just not sure anyone. I'm not sure you're you're suited uh, to go out arrogant. I, I, it can certainly work, right? There's certainly arrogant people go out arrogant, and it happens that they're you know that that the, the, they are better than the other person, and it works. But it's like, isn't the timeless story of sports and and uh, you know and and prize fighting that you know the underdog beats the overconfident, egotistical, arrogant, you know, champion, uh, then they become that person and soon enough are beaten by the next uh, underdog who is, you know, humble enough in preparation to put in the work necessary to win. Yeah. So a couple of things. One, I think Trump is a great example of being arrogant in performance and not humble in preparation. And so I, I think if he had earned his humble, if he was humble in preparation, then the arrogance in, in performance would work. So I think Steph, because he's humble in preparation, earns the arrogance in performance. And for me, at least with the way I see it is, I need to be confident in my humility and confident in my arrogance. And so when, when I'm talking about arrogance, I'm just talking about this belief that I know what to do and I know how to do it. And in my line of work, what I notice is that people bring humility into the performance and that also can cause them to choke and cause them to struggle and cause them to freeze up because they all of a sudden are getting feedback that suggests that they're not on that day. They missed their first five shots or whatever it might be. And then they go humble and then they defer and they stop believing in themselves. So I'm certainly not saying arrogance alone will help someone maximize their ability to perform. I'm saying the cocktail of the two, right? So I need to earn it through humble preparation. And then when I'm between the lines, that's when I need to have this sustained belief that I'm important, that I matter. And, And yes, completely, we've all seen performers and you use David and Goliath as an example. Um, and I think it's a really good one, but I would argue that Goliath's problem is that he didn't humbly prepare for sure. that battle. Well, 
Look, so some of this is obviously semantics. For and sure. As, as a writer who sort of is obsessed with words, I think <laughs> that's probably why I'm, I'm taking issue with this. But like the, de- the definition of arrogance is, is, is exaggerating one's own worth or importance or, or uh, you know, just uh, uh, making unwarrantable claims about your importance. So like I, I would argue that your point that you earn it with the humility by definition makes it not arrogance. Right. So. So, again, I don't think Steph Curry is arrogant to think like, OK, uh, D- Damian Lillard takes the shot in the first round of the Western Conference uh, um, playoffs. Yeah. Uh, against uh, against OKC. Um, he knew he could make that shot, not because uh, he was arrogant or he didn't take that shot out of arrogance. He took that shot because he knew he could make it and because he'd hit it a thousand times in practice. And so, so sure, there, there needs to be a, a, a sense of belief in one's capacity or abilities. I think to call that arrogance is to do that a disservice because uh, that, that implies that it's not, not earned. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, I, I hear it. And I definitely, look, when I'm, when I'm writing this and thinking about it and talking about it, like I even went towards narcissism at one point. Is it narcissism? I thought that was probably too much. I thought about the easiest thing for me to do would just say it's confidence. Um, But for me, at least, I think Lillard's another good example. Like he does have an exaggerated sense because this was a guy, I used to have an NBA draft website years ago and Damian Lillard was playing at Weber State. And I had Lillard just on my board, like in the hundredth. And he was, I think he tore his ACL and he was sitting out that year. And the conference that he was playing for, which honestly, I don't even know the conference that Weaver State's in, sent me an email saying, hey, we saw you have Damien on the board. We want to send you some films so you can watch more on Damien. And so, like, I think he's another good example because the feedback that he was getting from people for a long time and Steph too. I mean, Steph, his dad went to Virginia Tech as a legend and Virginia Tech says, oh, we've got a walk-on spot for you. You know, you don't even deserve a scholarship. Like, I think it's, I just think it's a step up from confidence that when you get between the lines, it is, it's this inner belief that I can do it. And look, I think we can have the conversation and continue to debate it. But for me, at least, I also just see like people that say, okay, I'm going to be confident. And then that confidence is fleeting and that feeling goes away. And the arrogance just between the lines, you know, as soon as you come off the lines, you're back to humility. Um, And, and like Serena Williams, Beyonce, Richard Sherman, there's all these people that when they get between the lines, they transform and they transform into something different that is remarkable. Kobe, you could go on and on these great Brady. You mentioned Brady earlier. Like, sure. It's no, I would agree. I think something a step up from confidence. That's, that's where I'm going. And, And by the way, that's one segment, the rest of them, like, you know, fear of failure, fearless is perfection and adaptable. It's just, the book is really about shifting your mind and understanding sure. that what you need in preparation might be different than what you need in performance. You even said like your ability to pay attention to every detail, to go into the definition, like really no arrogant, like get it perfect. And then I'm sure you get to a point where when you start writing, you just got to let it flow and adapt. And then you go back into that preparation mind and, and shift it again. So the ability to shift and that we're not just one thing all the time and we need to be able to play in these different spaces depending on the environments we're in. That's really what the book is about. But I know arrogance is going to be a lightning rod for people. No, that's that, good. That's yeah. good. If, if your book doesn't provoke a reaction, you're almost certainly doing something wrong. Uh, yeah. So I think about that a lot too. No, I, I think there, and, and, and this is one of the things I think I'm attracted to in stoicism, uh, th- there is kind of a, a savagery to it or a kind of like a, a determination to it. Like you will not break me. You will not beat me. Like you, you haven't put in the work uh, to be able to tell me how this is going to go. And so I, I, I do, I do think you have to have that. I think the, one of the things I, I think I was writing about an ego that I think, you know, people, people need to, to, to think about is that often we look at the, we look at what's happening between the lines and that's what we emulate. And then the other stuff is hidden. And so, um, uh, we, we don't really understand. So we, we emulate that less. So I think like Kanye West is a great example. You see the, you see the arrogance of, uh, um, of and the swagger of how he performs and how he comports himself in interviews and all that. Sometimes it doesn't do him well, but like you can't be, you know, Kanye turning it down, uh, 10 degrees is not Kanye anymore, right? Like, like there, there, there's a persona there that it has to be. 
but I, I mean, I've never, never been in the studio with Kanye, but you can tell from the music that who he is when he's actually making the stuff is not that arrogant person. Or we would be, you know, like, like it, I was talking about, you have to be comfortable making crappy first drafts. What's interesting is you have to be comfortable making crappy first drafts, but then be an absolute perfectionist and sort of like a, almost an asshole about what is allowed to be published, you know? So like, uh, your publisher, your record label is telling you, okay, we want to go out. And you're like, no, like this isn't ready yet. Like um, there's just no way in my understanding that Kanye West is not almost uh, obsessively humble when he's writing and working. And this is why his music takes so long. This is why it's so layered. This is why it uses so many collaborators, so on and so forth. That is where the humility side of things is. So I, I think it's uh, what, what we see is we see Steve Jobs being an asshole to his employees. And you read about it in a biography and you go, oh, that's how a CEO is. And you don't realize it's not that he earned that, but that, that um, it's, it's that that was excusable because he'd done so much incredible work other places. Awesome. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that's probably the intersection where, where we'll probably agree. And Kanye is actually in that chapter. I think I lead with Kanye. So um, I think it's flat out. I think you're right. We often don't see what's going on when no one's watching. And that's where a lot of the genius is being made. That's where the sausage is often being made. You mentioned stoicism. Why stoicism? Why not? You mentioned Buddhism earlier. There's tons of religious philosophy. In your books, you also reference religion a lot as well. You, you reference history, but it's clear that stoicism has become a North Star for you. So I'm curious for you, what about stoicism is, uh, resonates so much with your heart and your head? I mean, I think one, it's the, it's the teachings. I think they're sort of straightforward and accessible and practical. And I love how they're written and I love, you know, what they tell you. I think a, a big part of it is, it's like, you know, you know, name me like five or six people uh, in the history of Buddhism that you, you know, have done things you admire, right? Like it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's much more of an sort of individualistic philosophy. It's, it's much more, in internal it's sort of about retreating from the world it, 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 at least this is my sort of reader criticism of it what i love is like the most famous stoic is marcus Rius, the emperor of rome right the second most famous stoic is epictetus who survives slavery to become the philosopher that influences marcus Rius. i'm just i'm 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 so fascinated and inspired by the idea that these were philosophers primarily by what they did not by what they said or wrote about. And, and so I think to me, and this is why I think it's worked well in the books, is that it's, it's much more about showing than it is telling. I love that. So it's about action and they've been there. They've been on the front line. They've had to make tough decisions. They're, they're imperfect, right? They're not some perfect uh, god or, or anything like yeah. that. I mean, they're what, human. What? One of the early Stoics, this, this guy named Chrysippus, was like a, an Olympic level distance runner uh, in, in, you know, in ancient Athens. And so you're like, oh, you know, another one was a boxer. You know, uh, th th these were people who were who were not just like doing things professionally, but also like like were were regular people. What else? What do you do to be in action? What do you do to to get yourself inspired to also write because it sounds like that's something that you admire is, Hey, these are people that are leading, they're leading you know, empires. Um, yeah. What do you do to make sure that you're also in it so that your words have more meaning? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I, I think is important for creative people. And why I think Epstein's book on range is so good is that one of the things that can happen as a writer is you can increasingly sort of live in your own sort of unnatural existence, especially as you're, you're successful, right? So it's like your books are selling, you're making good money, and now you exist totally in your own head. One of the reasons I've sort of been active in investing and running my own company and, you know, like even staying active like as a, as a consultant or working with sports teams or, 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 you know, doing marketing for other people's books or even ghostwriting other people's books, one of the big reasons for all that is, is that the more I, I feel like the more I experience and the more I witness and the more people I meet and interactions I have, the, the better 
I'm able to understand who I'm talking to in my writing. So the more, you know, okay, I have to, I'm in the middle of some tense negotiation for something. Okay, great. Now I have some insight into the negotiation process that I can talk about if that's, you know, a theme in one of my books. And with, with all the writing you do and all the actions you said, I'm in Brazil yesterday, what do you do to intentionally make sure that you're also taking care of yourself and that you're being the best version of you? I mean, to me, it's, it's all about routine. So, you know, I, I was in Brazil, but I, I ran twice. I, I, I was in Brazil for, I think, uh, like a little less than 48 hours. And I, you know, I ran twice, uh, swam once, uh, you know, journaled, wrote, and, you know, it was like, uh, available to like, uh, you know, I was like Skyping with my family and stuff. So it's like, uh, it, it, to me, it's all about routine and order and structure and not letting, you know, disruptions, even if you are traveling or even if you're doing stuff, sort of throw you off of your, your game. And you mentioned working in sports teams. And so uh, we saw, I saw you at the Spurs. I guess I was stalking you. You didn't see me. I was, I was, I was there though. I, I promise. And uh, when I was there, I saw you chatting with Manu Ginobili for a while. And then I was sitting next to Brian Wright, the general manager of the Spurs. Uh, at the time I was sitting next to him. And so I'm just curious for you, you've been around the Spurs, you live nearby. I know you've developed a relationship with Manu. What do you think makes the Spurs such a special organization? I mean, over the last 30 years in America, the Spurs and the Patriots have led the way. Uh, there have been a couple other teams probably as well, but I know you've been around both of those organizations. So what do you think makes them uh, the top of their class? Yeah, I mean, it, what's crazy about like a team like the Spurs, the Spurs have been like, the Spurs have been the Spurs since I was like in probably elementary school. Uh, like that, that's how long they've been doing what they're doing. So I, I don't really have, you know, too, too many insights other than just sort of being an observer like everyone else, certainly, you know, not, not something I'm, I'm at all responsible for, but it, but it has been cool to, to, to sort of meet them and, you know, see them respond to the book. I think what you see in the Spurs is a sort of a, a commitment to sustained excellence versus like we're making a run at it. So like, I think that that's something that sort of influenced how I've been thinking about my writing career is like, you can sort of feel like you're on a hot streak and then you make sort of short-term decisions about like maintaining or adding to that streak as opposed to thinking about like what are the principles that you want or need to continue to make good stuff. Um, so like I think about this now as a writer, it's like, oh, you know, writing isn't something where you only have like five or six years to do it because, you know, your body's breaking down. It's more of a thing you do forever. So how do you sort of invest in skill acquisition? How do you pace yourself? How do you say yes or no to the right projects? Where are you putting your time, money and resources in, in a way that, that can, you know, build something long term? And I, I think one of the sadder things about the Spurs or what I think is going to be interesting to watch for the next couple of years is whether that idea, like whether, whether players are willing to commit to that idea anymore and, and how like sadly how out of date the idea of like I think with Damian Lillard and, and CJ McCollum and what's so interesting about them is that they are willing to commit to a team and they're willing to be loyal and they're willing to invest and they're willing to do it over the long term. Meanwhile, you know, the sort of the trend of the moment is like, how can I team up with as many other superstars for as short a period of time to, to win as much as possible? Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. And, and the Spurs, the, the one leader that's still there is pop and everywhere you go around San Antonio, everyone just talks about pop. I think pop's 72. And so father time is also a reality. Sure. And, um, so they're going to have to figure out what Spurs 4.0 looks like. And um, you know, it, it it's going to require other leaders. So it, it's just an interesting thing. And I love that you bring up Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum because a lot of people don't know about them, but they're in Portland and all they do is compete and play hard and, um, you know, they are, they're awesome. And, you know, CJ McCollum's all about mindfulness and Damian Lillard's all about mindset. And so they're, they're really special. So I love following them as well. I want to go back to you. So you're, you're obviously doing a ton. What do you see yourself doing 10 years from now? Is it more on the writing side, more on the consulting side, more on the speaking side? Is it the same thing you're doing now? Is it business focused? Like you talked about building your business. What's the vision that you have for yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, to me, success would be if I'm still doing it at the same level in 10, like at, at the same level or higher in 10 years. Um, I think it's easy to to get complacent. It's easy to take your success or your audience for, for granted. It's easy to sort of just start repeating yourself. And so for me, it's like, you know, can I continue to do this uh, at the level that I'm currently doing it? And, and what is it going to take for me to do that? And who helps you? Who helps you continue to grow and develop? Who are the people that help you be be your best and not be complacent? Well, I have an editor. I have an editor at my publishing house. I have a, an agent who I've also collaborated with on projects. I have another editor slash writing partner that I use on some of my projects. So I have like a team around me of people. I have my wife, um, and then I have sort of mentors that I turn to for advice. And then I'm I'm sort of always looking at you know the sort of heroes that I have, I sort of, you know, what would so-and-so have done in this situation? You know, what, what, what sort of decisions were these people making in their career around this kind of point? So it's sort of a mix of, of like sort of collaborators, advisors, employees, partners, and it sort of becomes, even though writing is a very individual thing, it, it becomes a, a bit of a team sport. And then I'm curious about the idea of like building a business that's bigger than you compared to just doing the Ryan Holiday brand and we'll call it lifestyle business, even though I'm sure financially, you know, it's great. But how do you think about building something bigger than yourself compared to building yourself as the brand and producing products and, and stuff like that? Well, one of the things you notice in Ego is the Enemy and, and Obstacle and, and Stillness is like aside from in some cases, like there's a prologue or an epilogue, like I don't appear anywhere in the book. So I, I make the books not about me. I make them about the material. And then when I wrote The Daily Stoic and now I have this email uh, and website called dailystoic.com that goes out every morning, um, those are not about me. That's about the material. And so like, I, I want people to be fans of the material, not of me. Not because I want to be replaced uh, or I want to scale it or I want to like sell it or something, but that, that I don't want whether you like, I, like, I would like to write, my, my goal is like, I want to write something so good that even if you hate me, you might like what I'm doing. Um, and and I've, you know, I've, I've, I have some evidence from, from people that I've heard of that, that I've accomplished this. So, so it just, just the idea that like, don't, you don't want to, it, it's easy to make it about you. And, and so one of the mistakes I see, for instance, like I can tell when I read business books, it's like, if, if the word I is appearing too much in the introduction and I've like never heard of this person that like this book is not going to work. It's, you know, like if I'm reading LeBron James's memoir and it's all about LeBron James, it's like, okay, you've earned it. Like to go to your point about arrogance, but it's like, who's this person I've never heard of them. Uh, I have no idea whether they actually done any of the things they've said they've done. Why is this book all about them? And so that's a, that's, that's a key part of my sort of philosophy as a writer is, is sort of, um, stepping out of the limelight and putting the reader, you know, in the limelight instead. Yeah. Even though I noticed you in San Antonio, I would imagine that most places you go, you're not getting, you know, people stopping you and asking you for stuff. And um, I, I've seen fame up close and I don't really have any aspirations to have that. I think it's one of the reasons I like podcasts is, well, sure. I, I also don't have a face for TV. So there's <laughs> that, but like, uh, I just love that you can just produce this content. And I also love that the podcast isn't about me. It's about you and it's about the people I get to, to chat with. And so I'm curious for you as your popularity has grown, uh, any thoughts on fame, uh, any downsides to fame, um, anything that you've noticed or witnessed or observed being around fame? I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, as as you said, writing is a wonderful thing to be famous in because like nobody really cares, uh, and so uh, I, I think about it more in, in terms of like uh, not not letting it change how you see yourself. Um, it, I, I, it's, it can be good for some things, like like if I was a you know, if I was hideously deformed or if I was a, you know, a boring old college professor, my, my books not have worked as well in sports probably. So I, I think like there's some advantages to being young and, and there, there is a value to brand, but, but I, I primarily think about it in terms of like, um, like the work is what matters. The, the work is what's important, you know, the, 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 and, and any sort of fame or recognition you get, it's just a byproduct of that. I was going to make that my last question, but I got one more for you. Okay. If, you're, if you're cool. All okay. right. Awesome. 
you're a marketing, you started as a marketing expert and I really struggle with marketing. Um, like I'll give you an example. I was at a conference once where I was on a panel and the keynote speaker, his message was buy fake Twitter followers. Sure. And, and I was like, man, I think that's kind of ridiculous, but I'm on a panel and he's doing the keynote. So sure. you know, what am well, I thinking about this wrong? So I'm curious. I don't think that's, I don't think that's marketing. I'd probably call that fraud. Uh, I, I look, I think it is important. You have to be able to sell your ideas and you have to be able to, you have to be willing, you have to have the arrogance or the confidence to, to know like, Hey, people will benefit from this. And, and I'm not afraid to, to tell them that and put it out in the world. I think the problem is marketing is almost always easier than the work itself. And so people sort of phone in the work and then they get, they dedicate themselves to the marketing instead. And this is like the wrong way to think about it, in my opinion. Uh, for me, what just clicked was primary function, do great work, secondary function, market the hell out of it. And yeah, a lot exactly. of times people flip those around, market the hell and then worry about, worry about doing great work. So that, totally. that's a takeaway for me. Last thing, uh, where can people find you if they want to obviously buy your books there? You can buy them everywhere, I'm sure. But if you want to learn more about what you're up to, social media, or if there's anything you want to promote and give a megaphone to, I just want to give you some space to do that. Yeah, so I'm I'm RyanHoliday.net. <clears throat> Daily Stoke is is DailyStoke.com, and then we're at Ryan Holiday and at Daily Stoke on pretty much every social platform. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. And hopefully the last hour for you has been valuable. So you feel uh, like you get value out of this and you go to those places. That's my shot at marketing, Ryan. You can work, <laughs> on, you can work on it with me, but Ryan, thank you so much for the time. I know you're a busy guy and, and running around. So I appreciate you giving me your attention and, and being still while we do this. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The, the things I talk to lots of writers about today, which is like, how can I, how can I, what, what's sort of the thing that only I can say, right? What, what's a, what's a book that doesn't exist that should exist? Um, what are the things that maybe I'm afraid to talk about? Those are kind of exactly the things I should be talking about. 